Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Hey, well, shalom, shalom, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. This is episode 67. Hey, how are you? My name is Joe Amon. I'm the pastor of Out of Ashes Ministries, coming to you all the way from southwest Louisiana. I hope your week is going well. Uh, forgive the last couple weeks. We had a couple replays, and uh, we are back this week with new episodes and uh, lining up some exciting interviews. I know, I know I've been promising interviews for like the last year. Uh, not quite, but the last several months. Um, those are coming, working out uh, details and schedules and stuff, and I'm really excited for you to hear from some of the folks that we have lined up. And um, so, hey, if you're new to the show, uh, first of all, I want to thank Hebrew Nation for the incredible opportunity they give us every week to come to you guys uh, and gals, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, they have an awesome ministry and awesome platform. So thank you to uh, Rollin and all the, the folks, the staff that make this thing possible. Uh, again, if, you're, if it's your first time listening, then welcome to the conversation. Again, this is Image Bearers Radio, and this is all about how we fulfill the Genesis 1 promise. We were created in Hashem's image and God's image, and we want to know how we can do that. How do we, how do we move together as a community in, and show what the image of the creator of the heavens and the earth really looks like here on this earth as he chooses to partner with us. And so we wrestle with scripture and we, we deal with real life issues. We ask maybe different questions than, than what we're used to asking, which is always a good thing. And um, so glad to have you in the community. Uh, comment, let us know where you're listening from and uh, join the conversation. For those of you that are IBR veterans, uh, thank you so much for your continued listening, listening, listenership, is that the word, I guess? Listenership and your relationship and your support in the community. It's just really incredible. And we appreciate you guys so, so very, very much. So today's episode uh, is entitled Shavuot Continued Part 1. I don't know how many parts there'll be to this, at least two, Um, but this kind of follows what we've done during our Shabbat fellowship. By the way, if you're looking for a community to join on Shabbat and either you have a community, it meets at a different time, or you're just looking for some fellowship, we live stream our Shabbat services every uh, Shabbat, every Saturday at 10 a.m. Central Time. We'd love to have you uh, join in the live stream. You can find that on our website, on our mobile app, Facebook, and YouTube. Uh, so kind of following on the heels of Shavuot, some of us celebrated last week. We'll talk about that. Some of us celebrated this week, uh, this weekend. And uh, But I want to talk about the ramifications and the implications of Shavuot uh, and maybe bring up some things that, that uh, we don't think about a whole lot or just encourage us uh, and challenge us to th- continue to think about Shavuot, even though it's kind of come and gone and we're looking forward to the, the fall feast as of now. And so uh, let's go to the Father and, and ask Him to bless our time together, and then we will jump into Shavuot Continued. Avinu Malkinu, our Father and King, we bless you. Your creation blesses its creator, 
And we are so fortunate, Father, to have this time together as we wrestle with your word and as we seek you in how to be more the image bearers that you called us to be. Through Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. Well, welcome back, guys. Thank you for always spending just a moment in prayer. It's very important for us. So we are going to talk about uh, Shavuot. Again, I know Shavuot is past. Uh, our congregation here at OAM, we uh, celebrate uh, the feast days uh, with the nation of Israel, with the Jewish people, and so we follow the Hillel 2 calendar. Uh, many of you, I know, maybe separate, uh, celebrated this past uh, weekend, and uh, that's great. I hope you had a wonderful Shavuot. Um, here on this program, we don't get mixed up about calendars or pronunciations of names and, and those kinds of things. If, if that's where you are and uh, you're really militant about those things, um, then by all means, you know, go with it and, and study it out and, uh, and let your curiosity guide you and lead you and, and you know, find wherever Hashem wants you to be. Um, but just know that we, you know, that's not something we focus on here uh, and so the calendar and dates things really don't don't bother me a whole bunch. I'm just thankful that people are are inclined to and are actively celebrating and are coming together not only with Hashem, uh, you know, with Yeshua, but also with the the Jewish people. And uh, so great, great Hag, Hag Shavuot. I hope you had a wonderful celebration. And um, so that leads us kind of to why I wanted to do this this week. And I want to talk about first of all. Um, Shavuot continued in that, uh, and, and what's the reason for this idea? Um, as many of us come into the knowledge of Torah, uh, which I believe is only a God thing, I, I, I fully believe and I'm convinced that um, people are not leading us into this. You may have heard a, a cool teaching that God used to trigger your hunger for, for, you know, the, for the Torah, um, it may have just been something that's been stirring in your spirit. Well, however you came to it, I believe it is the finger of Hashem. Um, that I heard a teacher once say that, uh, that Hashem puts his finger in your heart and begins to stir your peace. And I thought that was a really interesting way of putting it because truly most of us, you know, for most of our Christian walk or our life, is we're just kind of rocking along. And, and we're doing the thing, and we're being faithful to church, and we're, we're you know, being faithful uh, into service. And, you know, maybe some are Sunday school teachers or youth workers are singing the choir or, you know, on the, the praise band or whatever. Um, but we're faithful in that. We teach our kids. We make sure that they're in church. Um, and yet all of a sudden something happens in, our, in that piece that kind of just rolling along gets to be stirred. And then we have to, we have, we start asking these questions. And sometimes we don't even know where the questions come from. Like, I was fine, you know, and then all of a sudden I started seeing these things in Scripture I've never seen before. Um, no matter how you come to it, uh, I believe it is, it is absolutely, unequivocally the finger of God uh, that, is, that is drawing people to want to know about the front of this book that we've held so sacred, and yet we have, have thrown out two-thirds of it or are really not given it the attention that it deserves. And, um, but, when, but when we enter this world, if, if you've just kind of started into learning Torah or you've been doing it for a while, um, you know, when we come in, we are opened and we are invited into an incredibly vast 
new world. There's new language, there's new custom, there's new culture, uh, there's a new way of framing all of Scripture, uh, there's a new way of, of framing Hashem, there's a new way of framing Yeshua in some ways. Uh, there's, ju- there's different holidays, there's different you know, foods, there's, there's just, it's a whole nother culture that, that we've been dropped into or that we enter into. And, and since most of us didn't grow up in a, a Torah-centric tradition, uh, a pronomian tradition, uh, there's a lot of new things that we have to learn and new dynamics we have to consider. And, uh, and you know, just too often I've seen it over and over and over, and you probably have too, and you may have lived this, I have. Um, we, our search leaves us, our search for truth leaves us kind of divided and alone feeling. And and that's a, a that's an, a hard place to be. And let me say this: I'm going to make a, a a statement in a second. But before that, let me say that it's been my experience that if if we are in a Christian community, we're in a Sunday church, and we we have good community there, and we have relationships there. My experience counseling and and talking to people, um, and my own experience was that. Uh, when you come out of that, when you finally go like, okay, I, 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 need, to, I need to detach from this and, and go wherever I'm being led, when you do that, there generally is a time of isolation. Um, there's a time of separation. And, and again, in my experience, it's, you know, I've seen people six months or so to a year or so. And I believe personally that that is a God thing. I, I believe that's a good thing because it serves as sort of a period of detox, I guess is the only way I know how to say it. It serves as, a, as kind of a period of detox where we're finding out, we're really taking our time, we're digging into Scripture, we're listening to teachings, we're, uh, we're, you know, we're focusing on where we feel is important and without the voices of Christianity. And that's where you know, we're kind of trying to detox from some of those things. And most of the time, we're not spending a whole, whole lot of time in the New Testament because most of us have grown up there. So we, we get to spend a lot of time in the scriptures that we feel drawn to. And, and that's, that's not what we're going to usually get in Sunday morning church or you know, Sunday school or, or uh, educational classes, discipleship training, and things like that. And so there, there is a time of isolation. And I think it's a, it's a beautiful season because even though you may feel alone and we may panic, Part of the panic of, of not being in fellowship is religious guilt, where some of us have been told, well, if, you're not in, you know, if you're not in church every Sunday, you're backslidden, or you, know, you have to be in, you know, don't forsake the fellowship of your, uh, you know, that, that verse. <laughs> um, and so we, it's guilt. It's not, that, it's not that we believe that stuff. It's just things that we've been taught that we carry, and we have a fear of being not right with God, and like, is this okay? Uh, and I believe it's a beautiful thing because what the the danger is that if we jump out of a Christian church into a Hebraic uh, messianic fellowship, whether that be messianic synagogue or whether it be just a you know a gathering, a, a more uh, Hebrew roots kind of Hebraic roots kind of gathering, what the the tendency tends to be that we don't get that silence, and that silence is really important. That season of silence is really important because it allows us to speak to God and allow Him to speak to us directly without any interference. And many times when we jump right from a church into a, a Messianic or a Hebraic congregation, then what can happen is that we just latch on to whatever they believe, and we haven't had time to really audit 
how how Hashem wants us to see certain passages and place it in our lives and really get our get our minds around it and get our hearts wrapped around it, and so it just becomes one one system to another. And um, not to say that religion is bad. I, I don't believe. I used to say, you know, God hates religion. I, I don't believe that's correct. Um, I think the way we do religion and the way individual believers rely on religion maybe should be tweaked a little bit. Uh, we tend to be not very thinking, not very individualistic and um, self-sufficient in our own uh, criticism and our own thinking. And so we don't see Scripture in, our, in, you know, in a way that's helpful for us, that we can place it again and have it active in our lives. We just take whatever is given, and then when it doesn't fit for us, we struggle, and there's doubt, and then we just push away. And there's distance between us and God, and that's not a good thing. So there, there always is a little season of isolation, or in my opinion, there should be before you decide that you're ready to jump back into a congregation where you feel like you have kind of got your feet under you. It doesn't mean you know everything, uh, but you've kind of gotten your feet under you and you can at least hear differing points of view. Because if you haven't experienced this, when you jump out of Sunday church where everything's just kind of the standard stock answers and you jump into a Hebraic type fellowship or Messianic fellowship, there's going to be a lot of people with a lot of different opinions. And so many times we're just not prepared for that. We, we don't know how to, how to deal with that. We don't know how to kind of navigate those waves and things. And that time of isolation is a good time to go like, well, you believe that? That's cool. But this is where I am right now, and, I, and I'm good. You know, I'm good with it. And, uh, and so I think that's really important. But, and this is the big caveat, this is the big however, it was, in my opinion, was never God's intention for us to stay alone um, one of the things that we, that I think the church does really well that we haven't in this movement done well is community. Uh, and I know there's some great communities out there, and I know community looks different to different folks. For some people, it's a every Shabbat. You know, you have a building. It's kind of church-ish feeling. Um, but you have a building. You, you meet every Shabbat. Maybe you do Oneg together. You have times of prayer. You, maybe you have discipleship classes and whatever. Uh, and that may be what community looks like for you. For others, it may be really loose, and you visit different people's houses for a Rev Shabbat, or you have a Shabbat gatherings at different people's houses, different times, and, and things like that. And that's all fine and good. Um, but community, in some form or fashion, is super important. And we don't focus on that enough. Um, unity is one thing. Uniformity is a whole different monster. And so many of us have pushed against community because community looks and feels too much like church in some instances. And that's the last thing we want, right? We're trying to detox from all that. The last thing we want is that. And so we push to the other end and the pendulum always swings to the extremes. Um, but I don't believe it was ever God's intention for us to stay alone and isolated. Um, and so as we deal with Shavuot, this is really uh, this really kind of rubber meets the road when, when it comes to Shavuot. You might be thinking, like, what does all this have to do with Shavuot? Um, well, we're going to focus on, on this, I think, often missed but absolutely necessary component of community um, and how, how Shavuot ties into this and teaches, uh, teaches us its necessity. So um, we find, as we do with all of the, the Moedim, the, uh, the appointed times, our landing zone is always Vayikra 23, Leviticus 23, uh, and that's, you know, that's where we, we should go anytime we are beginning to learn or starting to, to understand the, the feast days. And uh, I'm actually going to read a bunch of verses. Uh, and so, or I may, maybe not read, I'll, I'll let you read them. Uh, what I really want to focus on is Leviticus uh, chapter 23, Vayikra 23, verse 9 uh, through 22. 
which is takes you from uh, the wave offering and Pesach and unleavened bread, all the way through to uh, verse 22 is uh, through Shavuot. And so uh, I tell you what, for time's sake, we're not going to read all of it, um, but we are going to read uh, from verse 15. Uh, it says, Now from the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count seven full weeks. And we have to stop here and, and just pick up on something we mentioned earlier, that uh, this is where one of the big conundrums are, right, in, in how we fellowship with people. Because, like I said, we celebrated on the Hillel calendar. The Hillel calendar is based off of a Pharisaic rendering um, that says that the Sabbath mentioned here, so in verse 15, that from the day after the Sabbath. Now, check your, your Bible. Some of your translations will have a small s, Sabbath, and some will have a capital S, Sabbath. That is the in, translator's interpretation of what, which day, that which Sabbath that is. And so some of you may start and wait until the, uh, the you may start counting the Omer after the high Sabbath of unleavened bread. And that is the Pharisaic tradition. That's the Hillel calendar, which the Jewish people follow today. Some of you may wait until the weekly Sabbath and start counting the Omer on Sunday. And so for you, Shavuot always falls on a Sunday. Again, this debate goes back to the first century, at least probably before that. And there were different sects of Judaism that celebrated differently. Um, and yet the, the temple kind of being the central hub of all of, of religious life for the nation of Israel is, is kind of where I tend to fall and so this is the last kind of reckoning and the last judgment that we have uh, from the, the temple authority. And so that's the first big sticking point. If your congregation celebrates one way and you believe another way, my admonition is always just like Passover with the sighting of the moon and which calendar you follow, whatever. My admonition is always to celebrate as many times as you can. What's the, what's the harm? Go celebrate Passover with them and then celebrate your, with your family and invite some people from your congregation. If anybody balks at celebrating the, the feasts of Hashem more than once, then you don't want them around anyway. You don't want them around your fellowship table. Um, and so, you know, whichever, whichever one it is, it is good, and I don't want to get into that debate. Uh, verse 16, uh, count off 50 days until the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to Hashem. From wherever you live, bring two loaves of two tents and ephah, the finest flour, baked with yeast. And again, this is wheat flour. As a wave offering of first fruits to Hashem, present this with uh, seven male lambs, uh, and then it talks about the drink offerings and the pleasing aroma. Uh, and then we go to verse uh, 21. On that same day, you are to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. So again, another little translation issue. Um, this is an NIV, and it says. Uh, that you are to uh, proclaim a sacred assembly. Some people have issue with the idea of assembly, and they think, well, it's just a proclamation. Um, and let me finish reading this, and we'll jump back into this. Verse 22, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field, or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am Hashem, your Elohim. So this idea about proclaiming our sacred assembly uh, this is uh, the Hebrew Mikra Kodesh, and it can mean a lot of different things. It's a beautiful phrase. It can mean rehearsal. It can mean proclamation. It can mean convocation. It can mean a lot of different things. And one of the, the areas that we get stuck in is that people will, will adamantly 
say, well, no, it's just a proclamation. So basically, I can just sit in my house and proclaim to whoever is listening or not listening or to the cat or whatever that, oh, today is, you know, Hashem's, today is Adonai's holy day of Shavuot. And then, boom, I've done. I've fulfilled the commandment as much as I can. Um, and, and, and I want to push against that a little bit in, in the rest of kind of what we talk about. So we know the day as Shavuot. The church knows the day as Pentecost. Uh, they don't make a whole lot of connection generally between Mount Sinai and uh, Acts 2 um, and Mount Zion. But uh, we know that the, this holiday does have different names in, in Scripture. And again, Leviticus 23 is kind of the landing zone, but there, of course, is mentioned several other places. Uh, so we have Shavuot, which means the Festival of Weeks. Hag Shavuot, the Festival of Weeks. Um, it is, that's in, it found first in Exodus 34, but also here. And then we also have uh, Hag HaKatsir, Hag HaKatsir, which is the festival of reaping or the festival of harvest. That's in Exodus 23. And then we also have Yom HaBikarim, which is the day of first fruits, and that's found in Numbers 28. And so it's called different things. Uh, where we get kind of confused is Yom HaBikarim, because I thought Yom HaBikarim was during uh, Hag HaMatzah in the, in the week of uh, Passover, right? Well, that's a sheaf offering, and it's called first fruits in some places as the barley harvest. Uh, but in common kind of vernacular in Judaism today, Yom HaBikarim, you say that, and that, that is Shavuot. It's not, it's not the, uh, the wave offering of uh, HaKamatzah. So, um, so different names. Uh, Shavuot, of course, is the plural of Shavua, uh, meaning week. And uh, we say Hag Shavuot. Now there are Moedim, right? We know we see that word first in Genesis one fourteen. Uh, Moedim, which are appointed times, and um, there are seven appointed times in Leviticus twenty three. Um, you could argue there's eight with the Sabbath. You could argue there's another, you know, however many with the Omer. And anyway, but seven major Moedim. That is uh, that is Pesach, Hag Hamatzah, Festival of Bread. Uh, you have the wave offering there. And then you have, uh, that's three, you have four is Shavuot, uh, five is Yom Teruah, Rosh Hashanah, uh, six is Yom Kippur, and then seven is Sukkot. You also have uh, Shemini Atzeret and Hashanah Rabbah. And so you have all these other things that, are, that surround the, the major same uh, seven Moedim. So why, what is this Hag word? Was C-H-A-G, Hag, and a Hag refers to a pilgrimage fe- a feast. So we know that all the males were commanded to come up to Jerusalem three times a year, right? That was for Hag HaMatzah, that's unleavened bread. That's for Hag HaShavuot, that's Shavuot, and Hag HaSukot, that is Sukkot. So uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. So um, these are Hags. So when you maybe read online or maybe you say, you say, you know, Hag Shavuot Sameach, um, Hag Shavuot, you know, Pesach, um, Hag Shavuot Sukkot. You don't say Hag Shavuot um, Yom Teruah, because it's not considered a pilgrimage feast, and that word hog is is definitely tied to the pilgrimage feast. Uh, they're called the three Shalosh Regalim, Shalosh Regalim, the three pilgrimage feasts. So, um, a lot of different names and a lot of things around that. So Shavuot is mainly dealing with the agricultural. It's mainly an agricultural festival, right? It is the wheat harvest, uh, where uh, where uh, uh, Hakamatza is the barley harvest. Um, it's also the um, thought of as a wedding day where Hashem wed, uh, weds or marries the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai. We'll talk about that a little bit. Um, but one of the, the most important things is that it, it's, a, it's the birth of the nation of Israel, and it is the giving of the Torah. 
Um, and again, I know there's you know, certain teachers have done the calculations and they go, oh, no, the rabbis are wrong. You know, this can't be the giving of the Torah, blah, 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 whatever. Fine. Cool. That's great. Um, it's a beautiful picture, though, of and the rabbis have calculated this like hundreds and hundreds of years before us. Gentiles got involved in the mix, and this is how they calculated it. So, um, I, you know, I, I'm glad that people are calculating and trying to do the math and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and we'll talk about kind of the view on rabbinic stuff in, in just a little bit. If not in this episode, maybe the next one. So stick around for that. Um, but the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai, and and the, the birth of the nation, and the wedding of Hashem and Israel. And so we're going to talk about in the next segment the importance of learning and doing Torah in community. And I want to read from an online article for you uh, just to give you some perspective and then really kind of hit home why this is so very important, especially how it's viewed in Judaism and why that's important for us. So stick around. We'll catch you after the break. everybody. Hey, welcome back uh, to the second segment in this episode of Image Bearers Radio. We are talking about Shavuot continued, uh, as most of us have already celebrated Shavuot. And so it, we're, we're talking about the ripples and the implications of Shavuot um, because it, it's an odd holiday. Uh, it's an odd holiday in that it's only one day from the way that we understand it from Scripture. Now, my temple teacher, Joe Good, um, popped a question on me one time and said, well, how long is Shavuot in Torah? How, how long was it how long was it commanded to be, and how long was it kept? And of course, so one day, and he said, nope, that's wrong. And I'm like, okay. Um, and so after some back and forth, and him leading me like a little child with little breadcrumbs here and there and all, in actuality, we have evidence, uh, and it's pretty well known that in temple service, uh, that Shavuot actually lasted seven days um, in Jerusalem. And when we're going to talk about that, you think about the practical implications of this. We read last segment, not all, but in that Leviticus 9, uh, 23, verses 9 through 22, you read about all the offerings that's supposed to happen. And remember, this is a pilgrimage. This is a hog, a pilgrimage feast. And so you have every, na- every family of the nation of Israel represented with all of these offerings. How in the world do you process all of those offerings in one day? Well, the truth is that it can't be done. And so seven days were set aside to, in order for everyone to make it uh, for Shavuot and to, to make sure that their offering would be taken care of and that they could celebrate together. So just uh, this leads me into why I want to kind of push back on the isolationist or, or not push back on the isolationist, but, but promote community and what Shavuot tells us about that and how, how, is it, how it encourages us and challenges us in community. So we, we have a huge problem in the the... Torah pursuant Gentile world. I get tired of saying Hebrew roots messianic. So we'll change it up a little bit and say in the Torah pursuant uh, Gentile world, we have a, a, a major issue and it's like a cancer. And I'm going to speak pretty strongly to this. So if you disagree, by all means, I understand and, and don't write me nasty emails. I don't, I'm not mad at you and neither is, neither is God. Um, but we have an incredibly 
negative view of of Judaism, of the Jewish people, uh, and of their their traditions and their interpretations and, and halakha and walking out and understanding of Torah. So what we've done basically is we've said, well, Christianity is Jesus and the New Testament without the Torah. We need to restore the Torah. And so we've we've followed Hashem and His leading and we've jumped headlong into the Torah and studying it and and trying to keep it and, and trying to trying to pursue it and do it and yet we're still missing a component, and that is the Jewish people. Um, I know there's a whole cacophony, and that means a lot of noise, um, around, you know, people don't even believe that the Jewish people in Israel today are the real Jews. Uh, and there's so much time spent trying to disprove and discredit the rabbis, the sages, the Jewish writings, all these things. The bottom line and the simple of the simple is that there was a mixed multitude at Mount Sinai. And when the Torah was given, when the Torah came from heaven through Moshe Rabbeinu and was given to the nation, if you read through end of Exodus and Leviticus, uh, number, through most of the Torah after Sinai, there's one phrase that comes up over and over and over and over and over again. And that is, hey Moshe, or hey Aaron, Speak to B'nai Israel, the children of Israel. And you know whether you think about that as inclusive of all the mixed multitude or whether it's just the natural-born uh, Israelites of Abraham and of Jacob or however you, however you think about that, the bottom line is, simple as can be, is that the Torah was not given to the entire world. The Torah was given to one people group. Um, I'll talk about this next, more next week about Israel uh, and their cult worship. And it's very, very important that we think about it in this way. And I know there's a lot of but, 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 I get it. But this is an opinion and something that we don't hear a lot in the Hebraic movement. And it's something that needs to be brought to the forefront for us to wrestle with so that we can consider drawing closer to our brother Judah and to the Jewish people instead of drawing further away, which is what is happening right now. Listen, I, I'm going off my notes a little bit, but I have to say this here. I believe that this that the 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 gentile uh, that our you know hunger and thirst and our desire to chase after and to do torah um from you know not being raised jewish or not being not knowing anything about it really being raised in in a in a you know an antinomian or a, an anti-law anti-torah background um i believe that this the, the hebrew roots movement the messianic movement is the end time revival that the church has been praying for for hundreds of years. I believe this is it. I believe we are it, or we are the beginnings of it, at least. We started back in the 50s or 60s. I believe we are, are it. And yet I am very, very worried that we are, we are aborting this movement um, because we, have, we are beginning to restore the Torah, restoring Yeshua to his, his, uh, you know, his Israelite and his Torah um, you know, Torah obedience uh, imagery and, and who he was, and yet we've left out the major component that Yeshua was a Jew, and and he's taught in Hebraic circles like well some um, some anti rabbinic um, you know rebel type type Jewish person no 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 Yeshua was as as orthodox and traditionally believing and practicing as. Any Jew that any Hasidic Jew or, or any Haredi, maybe not Haredi, but any any Orthodox Jew that you would see in Israel today, do, did Yeshua speak against 
washing hands? No. If you said yes, go back and reread it. Do some more historical research. Do some more, some more study into who were the Pharisees. Who was he talking to? What were the issues going on of the day? Do some historical study. Get out of the Bible for a little while. <gasps> oh, did he just say that? Yes. Get out of the Bible for a little while and do some history. Do some, uh, some, some geography. Do some demographic study about what's going on. There's, there's tons of material out there about who were the religious groups in the first century. There, there's tons of material out there and more coming out every day. Did Yeshua speak against hand washing? My, no, absolutely not. Not my opinion, just no. What he was doing was re, reallocating, and not reallocating is not a good word, but he was reprioritizing the, the ideas of what was going on and people re- re- relying on their religious acts as a way of sanctification. Hello, I go to church every Sunday. Yeah, but your mouth is, you know, you gossip and slander and talk bad about the preacher and about your neighbor and everybody else. Yeah, but I'm in church. Well, who cares? Who cares if you've been baptized 27 times if you can't, you know, if you can't control your habits or your, your mouth or your addictions or whatever? Okay, you get what I'm saying? That's not different than where we are today. And the things that we struggle with today, are no, the issues are not different. They look different because it's, it's a different culture and it's a different time. But the, the heart of the issue is not, the, not any different than where we are today. Do I believe Yeshua washed his hands? Absolutely. Do I believe he mikvahed every time he went to the temple? Absolutely. Do I believe he went to the temple? Absolutely. Do I believe he brought offerings? Absolutely. He was, he was as Jewish as any observant Jew, traditional Jew of that time would have been. And that's the part that we've lost out of this whole thing. And so we look at the Jewish people today and we say, well, you're everything Yeshua came to teach against. And it's, it's, it's drawing a chasm between us and the covenant people. Do you, have you ever sat and thought about the fact that we would not know anything about the God of Abraham? These people, these patriarchs called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their names run, roll off our tongues so easily today. Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. They have a God, and we would not know anything about their God was it, were it not for the Jewish people and for us in particular, one particular Jew named Yeshua. We would not know anything about him. We might all be Buddhist, or we might all be... Hindu, or we might all be whatever. We may all be something else, serving a completely different God than the God of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. If it not, we're not for the Jewish people. And then, and they have carried this Torah. They have carried this covenant for thousands of years through blood and exile and death and horror and torture and turmoil. Look at what's going on today, just in this last week. Not even the, the issues that are going on in the land of Israel with Hamas, um, but and, and the Palestinians, but on our own streets in America, in L.A., in Chicago, in large cities, it is, it, is, it is dangerous to walk around in broad daylight as a Jewish person. And they are the only reason why we know of a, such of a thing as a, as a Sabbath. And what we do is we argue as, as, as Gentiles, we argue over, well, does it start at night or does it start in the morning or is it every Saturday or is it a rotating cow? Is it lunar or is it solar lunar? Or is it looney toony or whatever it is? And we're arguing over that stuff and they have laid down their lives to preserve the Sabbath so that we could even have something to fight over. And what we do is we almost desecrate it by fighting over these things 
instead of just going like, what do we owe the Jewish people for even preserving this so we would have something to latch on to? I'm sorry, I'm off on a rant and a tirade, but this is really, really important to me. Um, let me read this article from you. This is from a website called uh, My Jewish Learning. You've probably heard of this website. This is by uh, a rabbi named Joe Jacobs. And she says, uh, It is no accident that the Jewish people call themselves Am Israel, A-M, Am Israel, the people of Israel, rather than Dat Israel, D-A-T, uh, the, reli- the, the religion of Israel. So, the people refer to themselves, Am I Israel, you, you see Am Israel Chai, the people of Israel live, um, instead of the religion of Israel. It's not, there's, there's, not a really, there's not a thing there. She goes on to say, A sense of peoplehood has long been the defining characteristic of the Jews. Accordingly, the central experience of Jewish history, the only event that demands an annual retelling, is the exodus from Egypt. Though wrapped up in an encounter with divinity, the Exodus was primarily an experience of national liberation rather than a moment of religious awakening. That's a huge statement. On the the everyday level, this focus on peoplehood is translated into an emphasis on the community as the primary organizing structure of Jewish life. Wherever Jews have lived, they have built synagogues, established communal organizations, and created system of communal governance. Now, I know that this is probably going to melt the Hebrew Nation servers, but I want to read a couple of um, uh, quotes from the Talmud. Again, if you're, if you're anti-rabbinic, I understand. I get it. I, I've struggled with this long years, years and years. I've struggled with where do I place rabbinic opinion? Where do I place the Jews? What about my own personal interpretation? What about the way God is leading me to see these things and, and et cetera, and, uh, and, and bitterness against religious systems? And, and I've fought and struggled with this stuff for years. So please, I'm not trying to discourage you or attack you or throw you under the bus or throw shade. I'm not trying to do any of that, that, those things. I'm, I'm taking you on my journey, my thought process journey, uh, because I don't want to just be a, a, an image bearer to those that are quote-unquote lost around me, my family, my friends. I don't just want to be a, a good image bearer to the people that I left in church. I want to be a good image bearer to the Jewish people as well, because it, it takes both of us. Folks, I mean, that's the end of the story is it takes both of us for the complete restoration and redemption and the plan of God to come to fulfillment. That's just hard facts. And so if you, when I say Talmud, if you go like, (gasps) if you have one of those, eh, please understand that, that these writings are, are things that the Jewish people have settled long ago that we find ourselves fighting with today. One of the saddest things is that I often have conversations with people that are new to studying Torah or new to our fellowship or whatever. And one of the questions that always comes up is, well, well you don't read the Talmud, do you? And the question I always ask in response is, have you ever read it? And, well, no, no, I, you know, it never, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's made up and it's this and that and all the other and all the excuses and the nastiness that comes forth. And yet if you take some time and learn where where to read, read a few passages from, from people that understand what it is, and there's some great teachers out there that understand Talmud. I'm not one of them. I'm learning. But if you read it, you realize this there's a lot of issues that we deal with today that that's what that's what a lot of this this stuff is is about. 
So in, in Talmud, you have the Mishnah, which is the halakha of Israel, of the Jewish people, which they believe they got from Moses at Sinai. I don't particularly agree with that. That's not my, that's not my business to do. Um, and then the, you have what's called Gemara, a Gemara around that, which is rabbinic commentary on the halakha. So here's out of um, uh, Ta'anit 7. And it says, the Gemara cites other expositions that deal with Torah study. We're talking about Torah study. Rabbi uh, Hama, son of Rabbi Hanina, said, What is the meaning of that which is written, iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend? This verse comes to tell you that just as these iron implements, one sharpens the other when they are rubbed against each other. So too, when Torah scholars study together, they sharpen one another in halakha, in, other, in, in the walking out of it. Not only in the philosophy of it, but in the walking out of it. There's an accountability and, and, a, and a, a balance that comes when we study Torah together. Torah could have been given to Moshe on Mount Sinai, and it could have said, you go teach it to the people. But what happens is on Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments were given is that the Scripture is very, very particular to tell us that, that everyone heard, everyone heard the words, everyone in the community is accountable. Let me go on and read um, the, the second, or the, the uh, continuation of this. Uh, Rabbi Barchana said, uh, why are the matters of Torah compared to a fire, as it is stated in Jeremiah twenty-three twenty-nine? Is not my word like a fire, says Adonai. His response was, to tell you, just as fire does not ignite in a lone stick of wood, but in a pile of kindling, so too matters of Torah are not retained and understood properly by a lone scholar, one who studies by himself, but by a group of sages." And what we have, in what so many of us struggle with in, in the Hebraic roots and the Messianic community, what we struggle so much with is that we want our own interpretation. I want to be able to read this Torah, be, be, I, don't, I don't know why, because of Yeshua or because we're Western Americans or what, I don't, one of the phenomenon that I really notice that's really interesting is that um, I've gotten to be around several Hispanic communities um, that were Christians, you know, uh, grew up in Christianity, and yet now they're turning to Torah. And mo the vast majority of them, they don't have this issue. They have Torah scrolls. Um, they, ha they wear talits. They learn the liturgy. They pray from the siddur. Um, you know, they're learning the language. They're learning the custom. Uh, they do an actual Torah service as, a, as opposed to like what we do is more of kind of, you know, praise and worship, more of kind of a Christian-esque looking type of service schedule. Um, but they don't have all the rabbinic hang-ups that just what it is white Amer Western Americans have. Um, and I don't know why that is and where that comes from, if it's our individualism or, or what it is, but there's something about us that wants to kick against anything that's authoritative. I know we've been hurt by authority before, and that has a lot to do with it, and I get it. And again, I'm not attacking anyone. I'm just wanting to bring out this conversation because I think it's really important. And so we push against anything, against anything rabbinic, anything Jewish, anything traditional, um, any of that kind of stuff, and we want our own interpretation. Well, I've studied it, and I believe that the month begins here because so many degrees of illumination of the moon and the blada, the blada, the blada, and, 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 and I get it. And listen, I've been there. I've, I've done it. I've been the, like, you know, astronomer light because I wanted to get it all right. 
But what we fail to recognize is that, number one, I hate to break your heart and hurt your feelings, and I don't mean to, but the Torah was not given to you and me initially. We are invited into it, but it's already been given to and established to a people, and their command was to shamar, was to guard, was to guard, keep guard over the Torah and over Hashem's commandments. We get to partake in that, and we, become, we can become a part of them, and yet we are not the ones who are given that charge. I know we feel like we are, but again, we are replacing the Jewish people when we start to do that. It's just replacement theology in another form, in another sense. And it has put a chasm between us, us and the Jewish people, and it's put a chasm between each of us. There's a, a story I, I, I love to tell and I loathe to tell at the same time. Um, but I heard, once heard about a, a couple from a good friend of mine that um, a couple, married couple, came out of the church together, started studying tour together. Everything was great. I mean, they were rocking and rolling. And uh, they could not agree on how to pronounce the name, the yod heh vav Couldn't pronounce, couldn't agree on how to pronounce the name. So he moved out of the house and moved into like the garage apartment. So still lived on the same property and yet not living in the same house because they couldn't come together on how to pronounce the name. Let me ask you a question. What kind of insanity are we allowing to perpetuate in our communities and in our families and in our lives if that's where we are? And, and that's where a lot of people are. Well, I'm not going to, I can't fellowship. I mean, I've heard stories from Pat. I've had it happen in our own fellowship. Well, you don't pronounce the name right, so I don't know what else you have wrong. You don't even pronounce the name, so God knows what else you have wrong. I can't sit under your, under, under your leadership. I'm leaving. And they go home, and they don't find any other fellowship. They just go home because they're right, and they can be right all by themselves. And there's nobody to argue with them or to ho- try to hold them accountable or bring some balance. And it's not about me being right. It's about us being together. And I'm so thankful that Hashem has led the group of people at OAM that we have together, that we have discussions, we disagree. Sometimes we disagree vehemently, and we love it. We love it because if I disagree with someone, I end up finding myself coming their way a little bit, and they come my way a little bit. Why? Because the point is relationship with Hashem and relationship with each other. The Torah is supposed to bring us together and allow us to compromise and hold each other accountable. You can only do that in community. The the Torah was given on Shavuot at Sinai to a community, and it was intended to be lived out in community. I love these Talmudic, um, this Talmudic passage from Ta'anit 7, that iron sharpening iron, they have to be rubbed together. And let me just say, I know there's some wonderful Facebook groups out there and all that stuff. I'm not a part of many of them just because most of them, in my opinion, turn out to be toxic. Maybe I just hadn't found the right ones. Um, but, but being together in comments is not the same as seeing someone's face, hearing their inflection, seeing their eyes, feeling their heart come through the words that they say in their mannerisms. And I know for some people, you don't have fellowship anywhere around you, and it's nearly impossible to find you know, anyone um, that you would even consider fellowshipping with. And so this is not directed towards you. And if you're in fellowship, you're in community of some sort, and you know it doesn't look like OAM does, or like this one does, or like that one does... I, 
this is if you feel like, well, I'm I'm doing all these things, well, it's not for you. If you're offended by this stuff and you're doing it, there's a good chance it's not it's not about you. I'm talking about more our the way we think about it and the way we process it. And I'm not saying jump, you know, go find a fellowship at all costs, find a community. No, that's dangerous. I want you to think about this internally. I want you to wrestle with these ideas internally and see if there's maybe not something that could be added to your life by changing the way that you think about uh, about Torah in community. Because without community, there really is no no Torah. You know that if someone wants to convert to Judaism, if you do an Orthodox conversion especially, that you're expected to... To if you're if you're not so like you know I'm in Southwest Louisiana. There's not really a Jewish community within probably 150 miles of here, maybe even more than that. Um, a tight you know strong Jewish community. If I wanted to do an Orthodox conversion, just this is just for instance. If I wanted to do that, I would be expected to pick up my family and move to a place where there is a an established Jewish community. And you say like that's crazy. That sounds cultish. No, but why is that? Because how hard is it for you to eat a clean diet, not alone, nevertheless a kosher diet? None of us eat kosher. We eat, quote-unquote, biblically clean, which, by the way, isn't even a thing, but I'll get into that in another episode. We eat biblically clean, but how hard is that for us even? And in a community, they establish restaurants and butchers and, and all the things that are needed in order to help the community walk out the Torah together. I'll end with this uh, statement from a, a movie I watched once. He said, we are fighting with each other over who gets to fight the real fight. And I thought that was a profound statement and one that speaks to where we are today. We're so busy fighting with each other over who gets to fight the real fight that the fight is being lost because we're not engaged. We're not engaged with the real enemy. We're engaged with each other. And he's done his job and we've been distracted. So next week, we'll jump into part two of Shavuot Continued again. Until then, shalom, shalom. Shalom.